0: We are whole people. So God's Spirit's going to work through head, heart, and our action, our bodies. And so it's a matter of learning how to read the language of the, the Spirit in our heads. If it's of God, it will be true and clear. If it's not of God, there will be, at least until it's comes, a falsehood and a confusion in our affect, if we're of God, there will be a kind of joy and peace in a very deep way, not superfluous or superficial.
1: Barbara Quinn, RSCJ, is a member of the Society of the Sacred Heart in United States, Canada province, and a President Emeritus of the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality, or SSCS. She's also Associate Director of Spiritual Formation at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. We speak today about the lecture she delivered as president of the SSCS in late 2021, published last year in Spiritus, the flagship journal of the SSCS. I'm Matthew Hickman of BYU's Faith and Imagination Institute. Barbara Quinn, uh, my friend, it's very good to see you. Thanks for coming in today to talk with me.
0: Thanks for having me, Matt.
1: So we're talking uh, today primarily about the address you gave in 2021 when you were president of the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality. And this is a a talk that was um, then published in the journal Spiritus, which is the flagship journal for the Society of the Study of Christian Spirituality. And you spoke in your talk about the gift and challenge of teaching spirituality. And I guess I'll ask this first question this way, knowing you had to give this talk once you were elected president of the society, did you come right away to this subject, or did you struggle to decide on what to speak about?
0: Well, after I got off over my initial um, nervousness and intimidation about the whole thing, which was really true, sure, um, I have had lots of, lots of occasions of speaking and teaching, but not usually to this kind of audience. So I really had to wrestle with that, and I finally said to myself, self, be yourself. And um, do what really is important to you and what you believe in. And then it came very much to the um, fore for me that one of the things that I have struggled with or wrestled with for a long time is the real separation between well, the way spirituality is talked about. So often I've heard people say it's soft, it's you know so privatized, it's kind of um, you know really lightweight, and that is the farthest thing from my experience. So um, I really wanted to say something about how we are made as whole people with this deep, deep well of wisdom and which needs to be tended by the head. But that's really what I wanted to talk about. And I hear that with my student, our students here too, that, you know, sometimes they come to a school of theology and ministry and say, I came here because I love God. And some of my classes are so cerebral. So that's what landed me on the topic.
1: Okay, great. I really appreciate that. And, and that's my experience too, by the way, that this is anything but uh, a lightweight subject. Um, how, would you, how would you define spiritual experience? You're talking about the, teach, the challenge of teaching spirituality. How do you define what spirituality is then, what it means?
0: Um, for me, Matt, and I think this is valid and I think it's very um, credible For me, spirituality is a way of being in life in relationship to one higher, and I don't even mean higher. I I will take indulge myself and just call this higher person God. To me, it's about um, the real relationship with God and how God's spirit works so personally and so powerfully within us in an interior way, but in such a way that it that it is acted out in all of life. Hmm. So, um, and I think that people are just unaware of how close that is to us. So that's that's how I think about it.
1: Okay, great. I, I appreciate that. And I was taken also with something you said a minute ago about how you teach these students there in the theological school where you, where you work at Boston College um, who come to you and they say, you know, they're there because they love God, uh, but then their classes are cerebral in a way that seems kind of abstract and removed from what most motivates them as people. Right. I, I guess, can I pick up on this too a little bit? So you're a you're a Catholic member of religious order, uh, which is a society of the sacred heart. So religion's obviously very important to you. You love God. What interests me here is why you decided to take up the study and teaching of spirituality, right? Why not some other facet of religious or theological life? What drew you to spirituality per se? You
0: know, I think it's the, it's the deep experience of god that did um it makes me burn inside um and it and it informs everything else i mean spirituality namely in a in the deepest way really the power and the love of god but it informs everything else i love to study and i love the intellectual but it's always in relationship to that so um i i didn't want to be parceled off <laughs> into a particular area without really touching, in my mind, the whole, um, the whole in the heart of it all.
1: That's that's great. You know, um, like you, I, I study uh, and teach spiritual experience, spirituality. Uh, unlike you, I've not been the president of the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality, but I, it's still it's very... Just wait. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But it's a very important subject to me. Um, Now, you currently teach at Boston College, but in 2001 you were at the University of San Diego. I'm a native San Diegan, by the way. Uh, Yeah, ex-surfer, nostalgic surfer still. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And when you were there, uh, you founded the Center for Christian Spirituality. And in that capacity as director of that center, you'd host a number of events. Some were academic, like for scholars and students. Some uh, catered to a larger public, you know, in, in the area. You tell a story about an event you hosted at which a member of the university's physics department showed up at the event and said something that really struck and has stayed with you. Can you recount that story for us?
0: Sure. Um, The the day itself was, this was the kind of culmination of a long project of trying to help um, academicians at USD and administrators and staff, but faculty primarily, to realize that spirituality um, is shot through anything and how do we recognize spirituality as a challenge and um, and a real strength for anything that we do? And how does the discipline inform spirituality too? So that day, there were probably about 35, 40 faculty from across the campus. And one of them was a physics professor, a very nice fellow. And I said, my question to start it off was, why did you come? And Dave said, I, came let me tell you a story he said i was dating a girl and i liked her very much and she was a dancer and one day she said i'm i have a recital this weekend would you come and see me and he thought i don't want to spend my saturday going to a dance recital but (laughs) but grumbling he said but i really like her so i'm going to go so he got to the to the recital and he found himself leaning back in his chair ho-hum thinking he will just endure this. And he heard that kind of negative chatter in his head. And he said to himself, stop that. Just give yourself to it and be present. And the next thing he knew, he was so swept into the beauty of the music, the gracefulness of her body, the the whole thing, that he was just absorbed and was lost in that. And then he said... And that's what I want to do for my students in physics. I want to lead them to the edge of mystery, Mm. not just memorize the formula, but to be drawn into the mystery of what they're studying. And that has really impacted me.
1: That's a great story, and I love his phrase. I mean, that's the phrase of a poet, right? The edge, I want to lead my students into the edge of mystery. That's right. such, a, such, a, such a rich phrase, right? Let me ask you about that phrase, the edge of mystery. I mean, do you find that image um, more powerful than another metaphor we might use? Like, uh, I want to lead my students to the light of understanding, or I want to lead my students into the depths of our innermost being. I mean, what about mm. the edge of mystery? seems so apt as a formulation for how you understand spiritual experience?
0: Um, I mean, I think there are many ways to describe it and there's no one way, but for me, being drawn into the edge of mystery speaks of an ongoing process. When we move to the edge, we say that I'm over the edge falling in to something unknown as of now, as of yet, where there's a kind of terror and a kind of thrill. Um, But the the notion is there's always more. It's a process of discovery. It's not controlling it. It's in a very real way gratuitous. It calls us to a posture of very steady attention. Always on the lookout, on tiptoes, for the more. The more with a capital M and a small m. So it's a dynamic thing to me, and I I think it captures that for me.
1: Yeah, I like that too. I really like it a lot. You know, for me, if I think about my own experience of sacred things, my own experience of God, I would say that the initial experience is often one where you feel a sense of love or light, some kind of understanding breaks in. Um, There's something that is very familiar and warm about it, it's upon reflection, though, I think to myself, what is that? How does that work? I mean, and it seems so vast and so large, it's upon reflection that the mystery breaks in for me. It's mystery right. isn't the first experience, it's the second experience, you know, in some kind of a, a moment where you feel closer to that which is divine or sacred. Um, yeah. Does that ring true for you?
0: It does, although, you know, when you were, that's that experience is very true for me. But it also made me think. Sometimes it sneaks up on me. Mm. I'm not looking for it, but all of a sudden something opens up in me um, that is a gift and um, takes me to an- another place or another depth that that I think um, it's, it wasn't my effort to do that. It was given. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's been eh, it's it's a wonderful journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you write something in your in your essay you, that you spoke in your talk. And I loved your talk, by the way. We're, we're talking to you today because I loved your talk so much. <laughs> and
0: Thank
1: you. And, and I just I admire you so much. Um, you write this in that in your talk that became that article. Um, you say, ultimately, no one can prescribe a lesson plan for how to lead students to the edge of mystery. The art of leading them must come from the inside of us. Now, I'm wondering whether you can give us an example of when you felt you've been led, uh uh to the edge of mystery or been able to lead others uh, to that edge what what what's an example of how that happened uh, where you can sort of think about an expe- a, a case as it were um, for when this occurred for you
0: you know that um, I can give you two different examples and they they are of a different character in a way one of them was when I what I call a baby nun I was just starting out and um, I was um, reading the diary of a country priest mm-hmm. and that has become a very very important um in um formative book for me by george bernanos because what i recognized in that little country priest who was very frail and nothing really stood out for him except his frailty and his inability to to be everything he'd like to be as a reader i always pictured myself as a bird on a perch looking down on what was happening to the people as they encountered this priest. And they were deeply impacted by that. And it, it left me with a very deep belief that's never gone away, that I may not know at all how God is working in me, but I believe that God is working in me. And to really be at ease with that, I, I think it's something of Thomas Merton, what he calls Le Point Vierge, where there's a some some dimension of us that's reserved for God where God does God's work and we may not know what that is but I really do trust that um but another another um genre of the same kind of thing is in prayer um I made a 30-day retreat a number of years ago in Rome and mm. I was sitting in this orange grove <laughs> it wasn't a bad place <laughs> no and it <a, laughs> but it was not a it was a hard time for me it was a, in life there were some struggles there too and and i remember sitting in the orange grove saying god why did you not escape humanity when you had the chance <laughs> and having this sense of saying because i love you i'm i'm right in with you because i love you and i thought that's never gone away um so, I think, I think it's those kinds of things that just go down to my toes. And, yeah. um,
1: Thank you for real that. Shaking. No, those are good. Those are great. I, 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 that one in the orange grove, uh, you know, lovely place, tough time. That's a, yeah. very, that's a very poignant uh, feeling of, of a kind of a response from, from God uh, that kind of encapsulates, in some ways, it puts together uh, the ends of that experience. Lovely place, yeah. tough time how to get through that, you know, love, God's love, uh, God's love for humanity. I love it. Um, You write in the talk, you kind of, you're trying to describe, you know, in this article, this talk became article um, about how spirituality kind of works in and on us. And you write that there are two schools of thought that characterize education about spiritual things. One school is monastic and the other is scholastic. And then you also talk about kind of brain types, right brain, left brain. Can you elaborate on those distinctions, the scholastic, the monastic, and the left and right brains, and what those have to do with spirituality as you as you expressed it in the article?
0: Sure. Um, I think with the monastic, the monastic approach to study was to um, let it form and shape the, the person of the monk through prayer, through things like Lexio Divina, just repeating a sacred word or a scripture passage or whatever, to visio divina, just looking, paying attention, Mm -hmm. but always in relationship to the holy mystery. So theirs was a formation for a way of life. The Enlightenment came along, and and, and I think they weren't opposed to a scholastic um, at all. They, They were as much students also of all kinds of disciplines. But their purpose in life was to be a person of God. Um, with the scholastic and the enlightenment, there was, as you know, that gradual separation from that perspective to say, no, this has to be analytic. We want to be um, scientific about it. We want to be um, very uh, categorized about things. We want to separate it from some, anything that's too personal. So that's that's the um, the tension there of two ways of knowing and i think the the real gist of it is we need both we really need both but there's a bias in our western world for sure towards the scholastic the what um gilchrist calls the right the left brain that parses out things that categorizes that analyzes that um utilizes as opposed to the right brain which is not as been as opposed but in contrast to the right brain that sees the whole that's able to look at through metaphor more like poetry that sees the implications of things for not only the past but for the future for how will this serve people and all of life so um Gilchrist says again that both both hemispheres are needed in our brain but at this point he really projects that there's a power struggle going on between the left and the right and the left is winning
1: yeah okay it's interesting I um, I'm not someone who usually associates Sigmund Freud with spiritual things (laughs) but he he writes something that in the light of what you just said I find really provocative Um, I forget where he said this I used to do a much more reading of Freud when I was younger in my earlier in my career and he writes about where rationality comes from, this is impulse to rationalize things. And he says that rationality begins in um, our not getting what we feel we need uh, or what we want. This happens at a very young age. If, a, if an infant desires the mother and the mother goes on an errand or, or, or just leaves and puts the infant in the crib, you know. that. That yeah. there is a sense. There's not a sense yet. Infant doesn't understand time and schedules. Once the mother. The mother is gone, and so it, you know, there's a there's a, It begins to think in terms of sort of rationalizing the situation. How you understand the mother coming back. This is on a regular kind of schedule. That that, that rationality is born really as a sense of traumatic loss. Yeah. Which is pretty powerful to think about in terms of you know kind of uh, where we are in our society in a, in our effort to rationalize things, uh, it's a sign, Freud would say, of a deeper kind of a trauma, uh, which yeah. which is evocatively persuasive to me. Uh, you could have to drill down a lot more to, yeah. to apply it right. So let me ask you, this. say that someone tends to be left-brained. Um, they're more logical, they're more rational, more utilitarian, and so on and so forth. Or say that someone suffers from a form of mental illness. Say someone feels depression. Um, and it's hard to access things that feel more holistic and right-brained, and at the very very least can make make it difficult for them to feel like they can access spiritual things. What recourse do people have uh, if they are naturally left-brained or uh, feel that it's hard for them to access things of a spiritual nature? What, What recourse do they have to become attuned more to the life of the spirit?
0: You know, one of the things that I think is central in spirituality is experience, to really trust and um, and honor experience and pay attention to it as a very, very um, necessary language. And I think one of the things that happens with left brain is that it somehow can be separated, divorced from experience, that it's in my head, and I, I know this is true, so it must be true, mm. where the evidence is otherwise. Um, with people with mental illness as well, I think, I think there can be such, such pain and such trauma that there's a self-centeredness about it, too, that can't see beyond that pain. So I think one of the things that happens with the left brain, and, and this is, I am not a scientist, um, but what happens with the left brain, and I think happens with mental illness, too, is that there's a sort of self-absorption that gets enclosed. So I I look at the world today. I look at the political landscape or the climate landscape. And I ask myself, what are we missing? I think that a lot of spirituality um, is to really pay attention to experience as we know it and as we see it and say, why, why? And the individuality that is the left brain too, the individualism that is so rampant, certainly in the Western world, is um, I think the culprit behind a lot of things, and that we've lost lost a sense of relationship with someone or something greater than we are.
1: Yeah, and, I really appreciate that, Barb. I, you know, um, uh, I am, I am, I'm. I'm not someone who lives in monastic existence, but I did begin reading just yesterday again uh, Thomas Merton's book, Contemplative Prayer, and yeah. he talks right at the beginning, you know, about the kind of this monastic sensibility you're talking about, where it begins in experience, the experience of the divine. It begins from there. Yeah. and That's what I love about the field of Christian spiritualities. It begins not so much with an abstract set of concepts about God. It begins in our experience of the world, experience right. of ourselves in the middle of it, and asks, you know, where is God's place in the middle of these things that are familiar to us? Uh, and, right. and, and how does that dynamic relationship take up in where we are, where we find ourselves? Um, which right. I really love about it. It makes, it makes it exciting and anticipated, and it makes it also, I think, more meaningful given that it kind of erupts in the middle of things for us. Um, I guess on that subject about about kind of uh, where we're at and why this is so meaningful, you also write in your in your talk, in your essay, that we're in a moment, this quoting you now, when the stakes for life and solidarity, for love and justice, and for our need for God are perhaps as high as they have ever been. Okay, I wholly agree. Um, my question, I guess, is does your experience suggest that our openness to God uh, as a society is also as great as it's ever been, or is our collective need greater precisely because we don't seem to be? as open to god
0: yeah i think that's a great question Matt. um and i think it cuts both ways i think for those who are um, really tuned into that that the need for someone greater something greater something wiser and deeper is so apparent for so many people Um, i think the old answers that we've had don't work the old answers being what's in it for me and um, what do I need and how do I preserve? I think of that very much with climate change. Why is it that after 27 conferences of COP that we have not made the decision to do what we need to do to save this planet? Well, it's about my interests and my needs and my security. Ultimately, I don't, and that's maybe a cheap way to say because I don't know the people who are involved and it's very complicated too. But I think that with gun control too, with the things of this world, um, why, how could we not curb the things that are killing our children? And many, many others. So I think there's a certain individualism and a certain self-centeredness that happens when we are separated from someone or something greater than ourselves. Um, There's a wonderful poem in The Sleep of Prisoners by Christopher Fry that if you don't mind, I'll indulge. Oh, please do, yeah,
1: I love poetry.
0: Um, He says, the human heart can go to the length of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries breaks, cracks, begins to move. The thunder is the thunder of the flows, the thaw, the flood, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now when wrong comes up to meet us everywhere. Never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul we ever took. Affairs are now soul-sized. The enterprise is exploration into God. Where are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wake, but will you wake for pity's sake? Hmm. I love that. Um, It captures for me that the tension that we're in right now, and I think, God is the answer, really,
1: yeah. um,
0: in life, though, in all of life.
1: That's right. It's a great line. I mean, there are several great lines in that poem, but it takes so many thousand years to wake. Yeah. You know, I, I think about that. I, I it, it gives me—that um, that thought always gives me a bit more compassion for other people who aren't awake the way I wish I were, and I try to apply that compassion to myself <laughs> for not being yeah. as awake as I wish I were. Um It's not an easy process, but it can be so transformative, and it's so vital in the present day. It's so important. Um, Let me ask you again about teaching spirituality. So you you talk in in your essay again about Ignatius of Loyola and about this process of discernment, learning to discern the spirit. Then you write this, uh, you write, discernment, learning the language of the spirit, pertains to a way of living to the decisions we make, big and small, and the style of an approach to teaching spirituality. For if spirituality is about the experience, the contours and the horizon of our search for God and the ways of God, should we not invite students to develop a knowledge and sensitivity to how the spirit speaks through the whole person? Okay, it's a great question. I guess I'm wondering what that means to you to teach the whole person. And in your experience, are there risks to teaching in that way?
0: Well, let me start with the second part of that, Matt. I think there are risks. Um, the teaching is at the service of the students in front of us. And, and ourselves, too, as educators. And so I think there is a there is a boundary issue there, that we don't want um, our own um, all of our own struggles or you know insights or whatever to spill over and and obscure the needs of the students. So that's there is a personal um, risk to that. I think we have to be disciplined about that. But I also think at the same time that we're all people in search, and that we're all in the process of learning, or could be learning the language of God's spirit that will serve as a kind of compass. Um, it's not magic, but will serve as a kind of compass if it's well-schooled um, by the spirit too, as well as our heads and our hearts. So the language of the spirit, and I've been very um, influenced by Jules Toner, a Jesuit who died several years ago, but he's a, he was a real giant in the whole area of discernment. And he talks about it in this way, we are whole people. So God's spirit is going to work through head, heart and our action, our bodies. And so it's a matter of learning how to read the language of the the spirit Um, in our heads. If it's of God, it will be true and clear, Um, truth and clarity. If it's not of God, there will be, at least until it comes, a falsehood and a confusion. In our affect, if we're of God, there will be a kind of joy and peace in a very deep way, not superfluous or superficial. And if we're not of God, then there will be a kind of um, turmoil and a sadness. And we all know that. And in our actions, same thing. If it's of God and if it's of our true selves, Will know a courage and energy to do what needs to be done even if it's hard and if it's not of god or it's not time there will be a fear and a paralysis that schema to me really catches um our life and i think that if we can apply that also to our learning when something jars the the mind are we willing and able to say let's stay with it until we find out what that's about until it leads us to peace and joy or to um, courage and energy so it's it's a system of life um that's really wise i think
1: i love that Yeah, the, the phrase that we often use in my own religious community uh for the feeling of things that are contrary to god is that it yeah. leaves us with a stupor of thought right there you it, go you know and i love that phrase and i love the phrases the words you use like fear and paralysis and sadness and turmoil I mean, these are these are great ways to describe what's contrary um and i think yeah i mean Teaching to that, I think, teaching to to recognize that distinction, is a great way also to teach about how to find truth. It's a it's a way to teach what's true. It's a way to teach good, sound judgment and thinking, uh, right. but by teaching to the whole person and not just to ideas as such and per se in a more limited, um, more narrowly abstract vein.
0: And and hopefully to empower the students to do that exactly on their own.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. Let me leave you this question here. Um, near the conclusion of your essay, you observe that if we are to be credible teachers who point the way to the interior world of the spirit, we need to live the life of the spirit. Okay, it's a very important point you make. To people listening on this to this podcast, people who may not be university teachers of spirituality but who, in many cases, are teachers in their churches and their communities and their families and other contexts, what is one thing that might help us live more fully in this way, more fully in the life of the Spirit?
0: Well, I think um, for me, Matt, it's to be really dedicated to delving deeply into whatever we're studying. Um, it's to be self-implicating also, to say, where am I in this? It's not a removed, detached kind of a, um, an effort. How does what I'm reading also with the students touch me? And how do I stay honest about that? Um, It's to be humble enough to say, I don't know. We are in the realm of mystery here. And to resist trying to control and neaten up in little categories what we're really trying to, to talk about, to invite them to be comfortable with mystery and the uncertainty through the struggle and through the journey. Um, I think it's to pray. I don't think there's any way around that. If we don't do that, um, I used an example, I think, in that talk. One of our nuns in the Philippines was taking me through when I was there for several months to a very, very poor area. And one of the things she said was, um, you know, people, Barb, people are so poor here that individuals come from around the world to try to help them. And um, she said it's wonderful, you know, they really appreciate that. But they said the poor can smell it if you love them or not. Hmm. And I think students can smell it if a teacher is authentic and really engrossed and engaged with the material the teacher is sharing. Um, I do, and, and I think that means being authentic and true um, not to just mouth things, but to really grapple with it on a personal level, and um, and then I think people know that um, and are encouraged to do their own struggle.
1: Well, I sure appreciate your authenticity, uh, Barb, uh, and and the example you are to me as a great teacher and just a, just a, a person who leads a very meaningful spiritual life. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking with me, and and uh, uh, all wishing you all well for twenty twenty three.
0: Thank you. And same to you, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's a joy.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.